Lord, this is truly a most peculiar episode in the Gospels and it, um, it's hard for us to make sense of. So we ask that your spirit would help us to see what you want to say to us through this story. In Jesus' name, Amen. I always find when I look at the Transfiguration story, it's one of those stories that takes no account of our capacity to believe something. It's like if you saw a story like this in the Sydney Morning Herald, you'd kind of go, yeah, rubbish. That sort of stuff just doesn't happen. It strikes me that there's no words given to try to convince you of the truthfulness of the report. It doesn't try to explain how these things happened. It's just, boom, this is the story, which is hard for us. And it's probably a situation uh, similar to... Ian actually shared a good story during the break with me about uh, if you shine a torchlight in someone's face and it's like really bright and you can't see anything. You know that, that phrase, being blinded by the light? There's actually too much data, too much information coming at you and it jangles you. Um, we have a similar experience sometimes when we have an ecstatic experience. It could be in a concert where the music just elates us and it transforms us. Or it could be a trauma where too much uh, information that we don't want to process is coming toward us and it jangles us. Those are the sorts of edge-of-life experiences that render us unable to explain everything and then as we reflect back, we make sense of or make meaning. I think that's the kind of situation we're dealing with here. And uh, some of the response of the disciples indicates that to me. But let's just set the context first. If you read the bit before the bit that uh, Jeff read, you'll hear a couple of stories. The feeding of the 5,000 a real marquee moment in the ministry of Jesus where a whole bunch of people suddenly went, ooh, this guy's a bit different. Hmm, interesting. What's going on here? Before Jesus was a, a, I think the word is peripatetic, he wandered around teaching and uh, there was no internet or social media except for the grapevine, you know, and it was a bit slower than the instantaneous news feed that we get these days. But suddenly a great mass of people all at once took notice. A little bit akin perhaps, I don't know if you're following the US presidential races that are going on at the moment, but you might have caught up on the Democratic side, you've probably heard of Donald Trump, he's on the Republican side. On the other side, the Democrats, there's Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. So it was considered a one-horse race, Hillary Clinton, she was going to win. Nobody had heard of Bernie Sanders. And suddenly, since the Iowa caucuses, where Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton were neck and neck, it's a real race. Suddenly there's another person in the race. Out of nowhere emerges this person. So this is a similar kind of thing. Jesus has suddenly emerged as if out of nowhere and people are noticing him. So that leads to the obvious question, and I'm sure Bernie Sanders is experiencing this now. Who is this guy? Let's do the background checks. Let's find out where he's come from, who's his, who his donors are, what are his real policies. Did he ever you know, smoke marijuana or get caught in a sex scandal or something like that? We've got to do our research. And sure enough, the next story after the feeding of the 5,000 is Jesus uh, hearing people saying stuff about him and turning to the disciples and saying, what are they saying? Who do they think I am? 
And uh, identity is a really important thing. We, we like to know who a person is because it's how we place them. Are they powerful? Are they important? Who are they connected with? All those sorts of things. Who pays their bills? We want to know this sort of stuff. It, it indicates our network of connections, our social and cultural standing in the structures of the day. So Jesus wants to find out how people are perceiving him, not so that he can make his political move. He's not waiting for that moment where enough people think he's a good bloke so he can go and take power. He's actually trying to suss out whether it's going to be safe for him to still move around relatively unnoticed. That's what he wants to do at this stage in his ministry. It's quite fascinating. He doesn't want people to be going, yay, he's the Messiah. He wants to find out what they are saying so that he can gauge how to handle himself in the midst of that. Of course, Peter does blurt out, you're the Messiah, you're you're the son of the living God kind of thing. And in Mark's Gospel, we know um, a very interesting little interaction happens there because Jesus immediately turns to give meaning to this word Messiah. Peter says, you're the Messiah, but he has no idea what he's saying. And Jesus says, you're right, and I'm going to go and die. And three days later, I'll rise. And in Luke's Gospel here, we get a little bit of teaching added to that. Unless a person, if a person tries to save their own life, they're going to lose it. But if they lose their life for my sake, they'll find it. This is very, very problematic teaching. And as I say, in Mark's Gospel, uh, Peter immediately turns on Jesus and says, mate, get the talking points right. That's not how we do Messiah here. And uh, Jesus says to him, I mean, <laughs> I'm amazed at Peter. Imagine the balls of that guy, eh? Saying to Jesus, you got it wrong. You know? <laughs> and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, which is a pretty strong rebuke. So he's pretty serious about this stuff. And um, so that's the context. Amazing event, 5,000 people fed, sussing out how people perceiving my identity, who I am. Mark, uh, sorry, Peter says, you're the Messiah. And then Jesus says, yes, I am. And this is what that means. And it's pretty darn challenging stuff. It's completely against the cultural expectations. It's against our human instincts, in a sense. And so that's the context of this walk up the mount and these bizarre events that then take place. The first of which is the appearance of Moses and Elijah. Now, this story raises so many more questions than it attempts to answer. Because my first question is, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? Like, did Moses have the Ten Commandments or have a name tag on? Or what was Elijah looking like that made it so clear? But there you are. It's Moses and Elijah. I don't know how they knew, but it seemed to be the case. And Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. These are the authorities of the people of God. There is no higher authority than the law and the prophets. Save God himself. And that's where Jesus enters into that conversation. So Moses, Elijah, Jesus, all there conversing together, standing on that ground. And in the midst of that, a voice comes and says, 
This is my son. Listen to him. So this is my son. So this is not simply the envoy of God. This is not the messenger boy. This is not some lackey or servant I've sent out to do something. This is God's son. There is a direct connection with God. There is a one with. This is Jesus who is God. This is the authority. Now again, so little explanation is given to us about that and you sit there and you go, yeah, I don't know if I buy that or not. Well, that's your choice. There's, there's no one going to come along and try and persuade you. It's just there. You can think about it and make a decision in relation to it. And further to that, uh, God says, listen to him. So as if to completely finish any discussion about where authority lies, it's with Jesus. And this was an important demarcation. It's a very specific calling out of Jesus as the authority to listen to so there can be no remaining confusion. And I put it to you, this is the purpose of this particular story. It is to establish Jesus as the authority, as God in human form. That's why the story exists in the Gospels. And that's a very, very important thing for us because when the betrayal and the crucifixion come, as it seems only Jesus knew it had to, everyone else wasn't really expecting that, but from the very beginning Jesus was, it's imperative that the three witnesses, James, John and Peter, know about this event so that they can say that one who was crucified was God. And then that's when the story actually comes out. Now all of this would have been a very, very challenging set of experiences to process. The disciples are are telling the story, so it's their story they're telling and they're not telling themselves in a very flattering light. If you read how the story is told, you know, they fall asleep, they wake up, they're kind of coming to their senses, they're fully awake and suddenly this stuff is going on and they're not sure exactly what to make of it. And we know they're not sure what to make of it because of the interesting things that they decide to do. What's Peter's first response? Let's build some tabernacles. Obviously, that's what you do, isn't it? You know, <laughs> Moses, Elijah, Jesus having a conversation, let's build a house. <laughs> it's almost... I mean, it is the thing that we do. When, when there's an experience and it's really powerful and we want to mark it, we want it to stay with us, and so we want to build something tangible. People have been doing it for years. And before they built houses like this, they would stack stones upon each other because significant events happened in this place. Because the experience is so here and gone. It's so caught up with the vicissitudes of memory and, you know, corporate memory and stuff like that. Let's have something tangible that marks it, that we know it's there and we can look back to that thing and it holds the memory for us. We're trying to hold it together, hold this thing so that it will stay with us. But really they're quite dismayed. They don't really know what it is they're trying to hold. Building tabernacles doesn't quite cut it in the sense of trying to hold the meaning of uh, what's going on there. 
further to that, it, the text also says that they were um, terrified. They were, they were scared out of their wits. Now, this interests me because I think it's getting harder and harder to scare people out of their wits. Imagine if you were in a situation where you were bushwalking and suddenly events like this happened where somebody shone really brightly and uh, there was a big cloud that came over and you heard some amplified voice or something like that. I wonder how many of us, our first instinct would be, where are the lights? Who's got the fog machine? You know, we have the technology to create these things and you know, we're not so gullible, are we? We, we want to check. I mean, they didn't have that technology back then. I'm not suggesting someone had the little smoke machine or anything. But these days, right, we're not so easily scared or terrified. We, we explain things much more readily, don't we? But are we really less scared or terrified? I wonder. What about things like the global financial crisis? That puts the wind up, people, something really serious. What about people from different places living next door? You people are very good about that sort of stuff. But for some people, that puts the wind up them, something terrible. And what is it for you? What is it the thing that really terrifies you? Because we all have those things. The interesting thing is... um, Friedrich Nietzsche all those years ago said God is dead and we have killed him. And he was quite right in many respects. We've kind of pushed God out of our consciousness. We don't fear God anymore. But what Nietzsche couldn't understand was a whole bunch of other fears come in in place of that fear of God. And actually we become fearful of a whole range of other things, whether it's your health, whether it's your financial security, whether it's how well you live in your retirement, whether, you've got a, whether your investments are going to erode or grow or how much your real wealth is, all those sorts of things become things that we worry about because we've pushed out the one big worry, not the worry, the fear. Because fearing God is actually a really sensible thing to do. It's the beginning of wisdom, the Bible tells us, and it puts all our other fears in their place. And so they don't attack us in quite the same way. You take the fear or the reverence of God out And suddenly we're just scared of pretty much everything. I I know you're not because you're really brave, but for most people, you know, that's that's what happens. It's a fascinating kind of thing. So in the midst of this uh, set of remarkable circumstances, they were really, really scared. And there's a sense in which they should have been because this was a, a, a very big situation that they couldn't understand or process so just on that, that fear of economic stuff, in, in a funny kind of way, all the things that we now get scared about, they didn't fear about back then because they lived in the midst of them. You know, they lived amidst economic uncertainty. They lived amidst a, the potential for their government to suddenly turn on them. You know, Roman Empire, kill a few people here, kill a few people there. You know, they lived in the midst of all that. That was just the background to their life. And it didn't scare them because they just had to deal with it. Whereas we kind of get scared by those things because we don't... I don't know, it's changed a bit somehow. The final thing here is that the disciples, after this amazing set of circumstances, didn't tell anyone. Now again, in Mark's Gospel, it says Jesus said to them, don't tell anyone. Uh, Luke's Gospel doesn't say that. But I've often wondered about this. How would you go about telling someone? 
So we were up the mountain, right? And um, suddenly these people appeared and they glowed really brightly. And uh, yeah, what were you drinking up there, James? You know, <laughs> you smoking some funny stuff or what? It would be a very hard story to tell and get people to believe you. But it was really important that this story didn't get told until after Jesus' death and resurrection. And the reason is that it would have further muddied the waters of the process of Jesus' life and that whole uh, process of the false trial that he underwent. If this story got out, it would have been used as ammunition by those who wanted to persecute Jesus. You're, making, you're sending out stories about how great you are. You know That would have been part of a narrative that could be turned against him. So it was really important that it was not out there until after Jesus died and rose and then it was really important that the message got out there because we had to know that this was God that we crucified. This was God that our religious systems and our social systems and our crowds and our disciples had turned against. That was a pretty critical piece of information. So here we have Jesus. His star was on the rise, a bit like Bernie Bernie Sanders, only more so. Starting to have a sense of identity and people were asking about his identity. They wanted to know who he was. And Peter, James and John got a sneak inside peek into who Jesus was. They held that information until the critical time so that they could make it known at the critical time. Now we, all these years later, get to see the flow of that narrative and again it's, it's difficult for us to understand or believe the radical nature of this set of experiences and how they operate in the Gospel story. But they're there to tell us that Jesus is God. Jesus is the authority. It was God that we murdered. God who rose. So that we can understand that that throws into question so much that we thought was absolute before that time. But that's a whole other talk, so we'll save that for later. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, we thank you that this story was recorded by the disciples and that they did it without embellishing it and they did it exposing their own weakness and it just stands there for us to look at and to wonder at. We don't know how the cloud came or what the voice sounded like or who the two men looked like, how they shone, any of that, it's not explained to us. But we want to respond to what your Spirit is saying to us about the identity of Jesus. Help us to respond to you as our God that we might have reverence for you that puts all our other fears in their place to the glory of your name. Amen.